right. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another very interesting episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host this week, Steve Lowry, and I'm joined by my two incredible co-hosts and soon to be president and vice president of the Criminal Law Society, respectively. And I'll let y'all introduce yourselves. Um, my name is Emily Catlett. I'm currently the secretary. Um, I guess next quarter, soon to be the president. Um, I'm a 5Q, and this is my first episode, so I'm glad to be here. And we're glad to have you, Emma. And Garrett, if you want to take it from there. Yep, I'm uh, Garrett Farrell. I'm in my fourth quarter. I'm the treasurer right now, and I'll be taking over the vice president role of the uh, great Steve Lowry as he goes into practice court. Lord help me. Um, <laughs> but this week, we are very honored to be joined by your honor, Judge Coley, um, who is the uh, juvenile justice professor here at the law school, runs the juvenile uh, justice clinic at the law school, and is just an all-around amazing professor and great mentor. We are very lucky to have you. How are you doing, Judge Coley? I'm great. Thanks for having me here today. Yeah, we're glad to have you, sir. And just a little bit of uh, background on Judge Coley. I'll obviously let him introduce himself, but he has uh, been on the bench since 2009. And he's currently, in addition to being an incredible professor at the law school, um, over the 74th District Court here in McLennan County, Texas. And uh, I'll let you take it from there, Judge. Well, um the 74th District Court is actually a general jurisdiction court, so I hear a little bit of everything, including uh, having the 74th have the designation as a sitting juvenile court here in McLennan County. So I hear a little bit of everything, uh, civil, family. For, the long time, for a long time, I heard all the CPS work, but now I'm the referring court for our child protection court here in McLennan County. So I don't hear uh, most of the CPS cases. I'll hear the jury trials and some other cases that have recusals or other conflicts from time to time. But um, we've got a new court coming on, the 474th, and they're going to be taking over the, the job as a sitting juvenile court uh, once they're on board. And that could happen any week now. Very cool. Um, and I guess uh, uh, so a lot of the episodes that kind of go through your story and um, how you got to where you are. So. Um, if you want to kind of give us the point A to where you are now. Well, my story is pretty boring. I mean, if you've taken my class, you've heard me, you've heard me uh, make fun of it before. I've grown up in Waco. My wife grew up in Waco. Um, still live a few miles from my folks uh, and my in-laws. And so my story is not very dramatic. Um, and went to A&M uh, undergrad and came back after I graduated from A&M and started at Baylor in 1990, graduated from law school at Baylor in 93. And then I went, um, got married right before I started law school. And so upon graduation, I took a job at Smith County in their DA's office. And I worked there for a little less than a year and then came back to the McLennan County DA's office. And I was here for a couple of years before I went out in private practice. I went into private practice, actually with my practice court partner, Phil, Phil Frederick, and he and I set up practice here. Uh, he was in the DA's office the whole time I was there and practiced together until I got on the bench in January of 2009. And I've been doing that since. So, 
Very cool. I'm actually, uh, I got married about two months before I started law school. Um, so I thought it was very interesting that you, uh, got married right then too. Do you have any advice or anything for newlyweds going into law school? Um, prepare to apologize a lot once practice court <laughs> starts. Um, there's no way around it. We, we've got a, it was funny because after we finished practice court, uh, we moved and unloaded stuff in Smith County and Tyler. And there was this quilt that I unpackaged and my wife was like, yeah, you had no clue. I made that all through practice court. Cause I was a spring summer PC student that took the bar in August and unbeknownst to me, there was stuff all over the house. And I just had no idea that all that was going on. Uh, she and a couple of friends did that together. Um, and I had no idea that was how zoned out I was, which is not a flattering thing to admit. I don't know Jack about making quilts, but in hindsight, I realized there was obvious signs in multiple locations in the house, and I had just didn't pay attention to a single one of them. wasn't an impressive um, spousal trade at all, but I'll uh, I'll tell you, get ready to apologize a lot. All right, I will prepare myself. Luckily, I've still got a year or so to uh, prepare, but um, I will get ready for that. Yeah, it, being married in law school is great for me, but my wife and I had also, as I've joked, known each other since middle school. So uh, the process of getting married was difficult because you were living with somebody you'd not lived with before, but it wasn't like we didn't know each other. And you know, going to Baylor with all our family here in town made a huge difference for us. Most married law students don't have that uh, as part of their, their package of going to law school. No, no. Most of our family is in uh, California, so <laughs> long ways away. Yeah, I have no advice for that other than make sure you <laughs> can uh, buy some plane tickets and let her go back home. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Luckily, we have the airport right here in Waco. <laughs> yes, no doubt. So, Judd, you mentioned you went into practice with your practice court partner. What did y'all do? You know, yeah. he, he did all state criminal work. He did no no other work but state criminal work. I did uh, some family law work, state criminal, federal criminal, and uh, CPS litigation. Uh, some civil litigation, but it wasn't meaningful enough for me to take up time here today talking about it. Uh, those are the primary areas where we practiced. Did that kind of lead into your journey to becoming a judge or what kind of inspired that for you? No, it did. I mean, I enjoyed, I had a lot of respect for Judge Bill Logan. I appeared in front of him regularly when I was in the DA's office. When I was in the DA's office, it was at a time when, um, and I'm sure Beth Owens on this podcast, she was there. And there were a lot of really experienced lawyers in the DA's office. And if you even bothered to look around, you realized that you weren't going to last long enough to be one of the senior prosecutors because there was so much experience. And so I sort of decided I would try to do as much of everything as I could to be as best prepared as I could be to go into private practice. When there was an opening to take over the CPS work, um, and I don't know, I, I, I assume you all know. Cindy Tisdale may have actually been on this podcast. She's now president-elect of the state bar. She had been doing the CPS litigation at the DA's office. And when she was leaving, there were a bunch of cases set for jury trial. And I said, I'll come try those. And so I finagled my way into doing all of the jury work for a while in the CPS arena. And when I left the DA's office and Phil and I started our partnership, 
like I said, he would not do anything but state criminal work. Um, he was kind of obstinate about it. And if you don't know Phil, I mean, that's not exactly a surprise. He could be obstinate about a lot of things, but he wouldn't go to federal court. He wouldn't do any other, any other work, but state criminal work, because that's what he wanted to do. And so essentially anything that came in that wasn't state criminal work rolled into my office and I took it over. So that's how, that's how we worked that out, which did really lay the foundation for me being on the bench because of the composition of the 74th district court, which was the juvenile, the CPS court family and civil. I hear uh, a lot of people sort of like when they leave the DA's office, kind of go hang their shingle and uh, end up with a little bit of everything. How do you feel like, that went uh, kind of adapting from the criminal to working some civil stuff as well? Well, it worked okay for me. Like I said, Phil was, he really had no interest in that at all. And he was of the philosophy that what he did, he believed he did very well. And he didn't have an interest in dabbling in areas that he didn't know what he was doing. And so he turned all that business away, referred it elsewhere. And, I had a higher tolerance for figuring some things out. I had some lawyers that I was friends with and they would work with me from time to time coming out of the DA's office. Cause when you're in the DA's office coming out of law school, even going to federal court and doing federal criminal work was difficult, even though ultimately you could figure those things out. It was a, a brand new environment, a brand new set of U S attorneys and prosecutors brand new set of investigators in many cases. So it was a brand new experience, not to mention a completely different sentencing scheme. So even something that was, for the most part, pretty similar, took a lot of effort and a lot of work and a lot of patience figuring it out. I thought it went okay, but I realize there are a lot of lawyers that will DA, leave a D, DA's office and get way out over their skis really quickly. Um, it's hard. I mean, I've talked to a lot of lawyers that have left the DA's office, and I've told them, don't take cases out of desperation just to make a little bit of money. Uh, you can wind up getting yourself in a situation where you'd give any amount of money just to give the money back and get out of that case if it's something that you don't uh, have any sort of comfort level in handling. So it works different for different lawyers, and obviously there's a big difference between handling um, cases that have some familiarity and then getting yourself involved in something as extreme as a contested custody case where someone's seeking to have a parent's rights terminated. Uh, you've got to be very careful and, and considerate about what kind of cases you take. Yeah, definitely. That's uh, very important from what I can only assume. <laughs> and I want to add something to just jump in, go back to, uh, um, talked about Cindy Tisdale. I have not had the pleasure of meeting her, but I have had the pleasure of meeting her son. He uh, started, Andrew Tisdale started class with us, Spring Starters, circa 2021, February, and he is just incredible. He, uh, I don't know if he listens to the podcast, but Andrew, if you're out there, this is your shout out. Um, you are the man. He's a great, great guy. Wicked smart, too. No, Cindy's fantastic, and um no, it's. Uh, I don't know if she listens to the podcast either, but shout out to Cindy if she's listening. Well, Judge, when you were talking about the federal system, you, it seemed like you were kind of saying that it's very similar in a lot of ways, but also really different in a lot of ways. And having taken your class, that kind of sounds similar to the juvenile system in some ways that like the offenses may be the same, but a lot of the other things are very different. So could you maybe give like 
a little intro to the class and kind of what we go through in that? Yeah, I mean, the juvenile system obviously is is housed in most instances out of the penal code. And so there's a lot of overlap between the offense conduct for juveniles and adults. But the consequences are so uniquely different in juvenile cases. And we get into a lot of that when we teach juvenile justice. Um, Because some of those things come up in the family code in a different way, because that's where you know, that, that's where you, we, we're going to cover a lot of the processes regarding adjudications and how cases flow through the juvenile justice system. And it can be, you know, it can be misleading sometimes for lawyers to come over and handle juvenile cases, assuming that it's going to be on a similar track to an adult criminal case. And they find out pretty quickly it's a very different method for having that case flow through the system. And, you know, I know for, for, for Steve, you and Emma, y'all t- took the class. So, you know, that there's a lot of information gathering that takes place in the juvenile probation department and at the school level that is just completely different than it would be for an adult when they were to getting were, were to get charged in a case. So it's, um, you know, it, it, it's deceptive because lots of times people think, well, I can do this. It's a juvenile case. And they come to regret jumping in and, and sometimes they'll farm that out and let other folks come in, especially if you're dealing with felony offenses, they could lead to a transfer of jurisdiction as an adult or a determinate sentence case. Um, lawyers have to be really careful about trying to swim out there and get in too deep. Yeah, it, just based on the um, and I haven't taken taken your clinic yet, like we talked about, I plan to next fall in my final quarter. Um, get involved, but just based on the class experience that I had, um, you know, like you said, the deception, the deceptive perception is you'd come in and think, oh, it's criminal junior in some, in some sense, because juvenile, and that's just not the case. It's completely and totally nuanced and a very different system. Um, I think it's, again, I, I preface all this with based on the class it makes sense in my own mind. It works in my mind. Uh, and I, I, I guess that this is turning into me saying that anybody listening should take the class, <laughs> but it's, um, it, it's just very intuitive once you get the hang of it, specifically working through the um, family code um, provisions. It, it's very, it's, it's really nuanced. I mean, I guess the easy example, and you guys know I've gave this example several times in class, was a situation where your client, the juvenile, is saying, well, this wasn't that big a deal. I want to go home. And you advocate for your client to go home at a detention hearing shortly after you've met them for the first time. And unbeknownst to you, their parent doesn't want them back home. And you can walk directly into a bus of a parent saying, no, I don't want to go home. I'm tired of that. I'm tired of sitting up at night wondering where they are. I'm tired of them not following the rules. I've torn everything up at home. I'm scared of them. And there's a litany of things they could say that are said in an attempt to discourage the judge from releasing them. And the whole time, at least it's been my experience, the lawyer for the juveniles thinking, wow, I shouldn't have even gone down this path. I should have maybe found a different way to couch this because now what I've got is a client with a with a parent and their butting heads 
And this isn't convincing anybody that the best thing is for my client to go home. And even if the parent sometimes says, I want them to come home, I've seen instances where something gets said. And again, at the heart of some of these issues, there's some things that have gone on at home that you just don't know about. And you're not aware about those things. And then the hearing starts and a lot of family stuff starts coming up. And we've all had arguments with our families. Um, we, we don't like to do those in court. Uh, we would not like to do those with an audience of people. But that's what happens lots of times in juvenile hearings is you'll see parents um, want to express their feelings about some things that they don't think that the lawyer for the juvenile has done an adequate job of presenting to the court. So, and, and I don't know, if, Emma, if you've seen some of those. We've had a couple lately where the lawyers for the juveniles have said, oh, they want to go home and the parents, yeah, I don't want them home. Yeah, I definitely recall you talking about that in class. And I have a friend who's interning actually with the uh, juvenile section of McLennan County. And um, that's sorry there the other day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, she's absolutely enjoying it. Um, thinks it's fascinating. I was wondering what, in your view, do you think would be like the best experience, kind of entry level experience for someone who maybe wants to work generally in the field of juvenile law? Well, if you get a chance to be at a DA's office doing juvenile work and you want to do juvenile work as part of your portfolio of work, I mean, it's it's hard to practice purely juvenile work and private practice and pay your bills in most counties, I would think. There may be some counties where you can do it that are really large, but in most counties, that's just going to be part of your practice is doing juvenile work. And anything where you can have, like anything else, any type of immersive experience is going to be better for you as opposed to doing something every now and then. I mean, that's one of the reasons I think being in a DA's office can be such a valuable professional experience. You may be in a setting there where you're being paid to try cases a couple of times a month. In private practice, it's really difficult to try cases that frequently because you're trying to balance other parts of your caseload and you just can't do it with that level of frequency. But being able to do that over and over and over makes a difference. I mean, I think in the 10 months I was in Smith County, I first chaired or second chaired 15 or 16 jury trials. So that's just a lot of experience that you would not get in private practice. I don't know if that makes sense or not. It absolutely does. I was just wondering, um, mentioning jury trials, um, is I guess kind of the frequency of trials and I remember hearing about detention hearings and how often those happen, but actual trials, is that kind of less frequent in the juvenile system? It is less frequent. I mean, most in the, for regular petitions in the juvenile system, only the court can hear the disposition part of the punishment part of that case. So you see far fewer regular petitions being tried to a jury. Uh, determinate sentence petitions can have the adjudication and disposition tried before jury. So you may see more of those being tried. Um, again, it's just, it's like everything else over COVID Some things kind of slowed down more often than not. You will see that juvenile cases, I think at a higher rate, I've not seen the statistics, but I would assume it's at a higher rate than adult criminal cases get resolved by plea without an actual trial. But even then, I mean, I, I know you all have seen the data. I mean, 
this is the Criminal Law Society podcast. I mean, I know y'all have seen the data about how many cases get resolved by plea and how few as a percentage are resolved by a jury trial. So it, it's not going to be a surprise that, that that rate's high and even higher for juvenile cases, I would assume. So it is hard to get those cases over and over. And it's, I mean, when you're in PC, you just sort of think, oh, everything's going to be like this. And then in private practice or at the DA's office, the opportunity to try cases regularly just doesn't come on quite as frequently as you assume it's going to. Um, I was kind of curious. I know they have the uh, juvenile justice sort of clinic here at Baylor Law. Um, I was kind of curious what that entails, uh, how the whole system works and um, how the law students sort of get involved in that. Well, the clinic's run by uh, Josh Borderud, and it allows, it's a win-win, really. What McLennan County does is we operate this clinic with the law school, and the law students serve as the attorney for the juvenile at their initial detention hearing. And the family code provides that if there's a detention hearing at that stage, that a lawyer shall be appointed. And so what we've done is we've worked with the law school so that a student gets a chance to represent them at that initial hearing. And if they're detained, there's going to be a different, well, detained or released, there'll be a different lawyer appointed to represent them going forward in the case. So the representation really is for that initial window, for that initial detention hearing. And it gives the students an opportunity to to visit with the probation department, find out what the nature of the allegation is, find out the circumstances for the detention. We're not going to dive into why you're talking to the probation officer for purposes of the podcast, but that's how the juvenile system flows. And then you'll get a chance to visit with your client, the juvenile, and you know find out what's going on from their perspective. And obviously, there's just such a wide array of allegations from everything from violation to conditions of probation uh, on a misdemeanor charge. Uh, could be something as simple as running away and the parent won't come to pick them up. And so you're having a detention hearing because there's no one to release the child to all the way up to you know, aggravated assault, aggravated robbery, aggravated sexual assault, very serious crimes. And so you get you get some exposure to a, a wide array of allegations and I think the thing that makes it most valuable for the students is you get an opportunity to have a one-on-one conversation with a juvenile in a way where they express really what they're wanting to have happen. Um, You don't necessarily do a deep dive into the the tenor of the allegations, but as you can imagine, if it's it's a situation where, let's say it's a sexual assault case and it allegedly occurred against a family member or someone living in the home, you know you're going to have an obstacle in terms of getting the, your client released if the victim's in the home and your client's wanting to go home. And so it, it, I think it's really, really important exposure that you would not get in any other arena but for doing this clinic. And so I think it's helpful. That's not to say it's, it's always exciting. Often it can be really, I think, really difficult. I think we're about to hit this period right before Christmas where it's really hard, or you may have some cases where those kids are coming up for detention hearings at an initial detention hearing, and there's not a family member that will show up to, to plead their case to get them released. And that can, I mean, I, I've talked to students regularly over the years, and that's one of those things that's sort of shocking 
is that no one's there to beg for them to come home and leave. And that, that's unfortunately just sort of the reality of some of these cases and what they look like. In uh, situations where that happens, what like generally happens to a juvenile um, if there is no family member for them? Yeah. Well, they'll continue to be detained at that point. If the family just refuses to communicate with probation or indicates uh, they don't have a willingness to come pick them up, then CPS would be contacted. You know, there are instances where the juvenile may say, listen, how about you call my grandparent? I've got an aunt here in town. I've got these other people uh, that I'm close to. Will you see if my mom or dad will let me go with them? Will you see if that can happen? But you know, more often than not, what you'll see is a CPS referral that gets made because there's no one that uh, will come pick the child up and they're trying to release the child. Is that uh, sort of a normal thing with the juvenile system is generally it's a release type of system, like after they're de- detained? I would say that happens more frequently than continued detention. If you're mm-hmm. talking systemically what's going on, but that's because the majority of the cases are not going to be the serious felony offenses. And so from a broad, broad lens, most of the kids are going to be released and some of the kids won't even be detained. I mean, the way the system works, they can be, be referred over with a paper referral and not actually brought to detention. So it's not unusual for there to be some instances where kids are charged with offenses but aren't actually brought into the detention centers. You know, the, I just at least have to at least put a post here that that's a shorthand answer to a complicated right. topic <laughs> because the, not every county has a juvenile detention center. And so there's some real... Uh, nuanced issues in juvenile cases that you wouldn't see in adult cases because there's so few juvenile detention centers in Texas relative to county jails. So judge, um, while we're on the topic of Baylor law with talking about the clinic, um, can you tell us a bit about what kind of led you to want to be a professor and kind of that academia route a little bit? Yeah. I mean, y'all, y'all know I'm not an academic if you've taken a class. So let's, you can calm down with that rhetoric on the podcast. Um, that's not my skill set. Um, I was an average student, um, but I, I enjoy working with, I mean, I've always enjoyed teaching. Uh, through the Texas Children's Commission, I was on the group that started the trial skills training program for CPS lawyers. And getting to work with law students, and young lawyers or experienced lawyers that just haven't tried cases. And I think it's fun to work with people that are trying to learn. I just think that's a, a an interesting opportunity that's always been something I like doing. Y'all heard my spiel that law school is hard. I mean, law school is really hard. To get into law school is really difficult. And to have the privilege of coming out and teaching students that have gotten into law school is really neat. I mean, y'all are y'all are all really, really smart. And you're hyper competitive and you're vigilant about most things you do. So it's an interesting environment to come in there. I mean, no one gets into Baylor Law School by be- having been a mediocre student um, or even semi-competitive. Uh, you're all really, really competitive. And so that's a fun place to come in and work with students. Just like doing the trial skills training with, with licensed lawyers. Those lawyers that are coming in... Um, really want to learn, really want to do a better job trying cases. And they didn't go to Baylor Law School in most instances. And so they are really craving an opportunity to 
get better at something. And that's, you know, in, at Baylor, you get broken down and built back up in practice court. But in the real world, if you didn't go to Baylor and you wanted to learn how to try a case, that's really difficult to figure that out on the fly. Uh, going into a courtroom and getting broken down in front of the jury with a real client in a real case is not something you can do over and over and continue to get that opportunity. And so the trial skills training allows us to do that work with uh, lawyers on doing those things. I just enjoy working with folks that are trying to learn. So um, I guess you kind of brought up the children's commission um, with the Texas Supreme court. I was kind of curious what that uh, work entailed and how you got involved with that. You know, the Texas, uh, Supreme Court's Children's Commission, I think, was started back in 07, 08, not long before I got on the bench. And it was created specifically uh, to increase the level of, I guess, professional education amongst the bench and the bar in CPS cases and child welfare cases, and has expanded to try to focus more on juvenile justice cases and the crossover arena between child welfare and the juvenile justice system. And I, I just happened to get on the bench about the time they were starting up and getting going. And, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I could tell stories about how we first got connected, but bottom line, I was more than happy to be a guinea pig and learn how to do things better. And I, well, see, unfortunately for the, anyone that would ever listen to this, you might not have ever heard my paranoia about recording lectures because I'll say things that could come back to haunt me. Um, so I'm about to say something that can come back to haunt me. Unfortunately, I've always had a real ax to grind with doing everything the way the largest jurisdictions in Texas do them. And that was always sort of a pet peeve of mine. And so I was sort of outspoken from the beginning about how this is really nice and helpful, but McLennan County is not like Dallas or Bear or Tarrant or Travis or Harris, where they've got these fleets of IT professionals that can write software programs, that can harvest data to compare between juvenile justice systems and child welfare systems. You know, we've got telephones and we've got cars and we drive to see people and talk about cases. And these largest jurisdictions would do things in such a way that was so intimidating to mid-sized and smaller jurisdictions. I said, hey, I've got to do things for the other 250 counties in the state and quit focusing on just the largest counties in our state. Because there are a lot of kids that are getting overlooked in how we do things because we don't try to spread this wealth around. So that was sort of how I pushed my way into the room to do some of that stuff. And it just sort of took off from there. Um, and that's always sort of been the, I've always thought of myself kind of, I guess, as a flag bearer for the mid-sized jurisdictions that do this work every day. Our, our families are just as important as the largest counties' families. We may not have quite as many of them, and we may not have the resources that those largest counties have, but that doesn't mean that we don't want to do things as best we can for our kids and our families and our counties. And so it sort of it grew from there. And so um, got to do a lot of great things with the Children's Commission while I was a commissioner. I just rolled off last month as a commissioner after a couple of three-year terms. So um, 
I'm back to having to show up by invitation on occasion. I think that's great. And to help out the families and the children of some of these smaller counties and stuff. Um, I spent a lot of my time in undergrad being a coach for some kids that uh, never had the opportunity to play baseball without me. So uh, getting to kind of give back to the kids and families that uh, may not have that opportunity, I think is great. That's great. I I actually coached a couple of soccer teams in undergrad at A&M that didn't have parents that wanted to coach. And there were me and a buddy from Waco were at A&M and we said, hey, you know, we we can do this. We we played soccer all through school. So let's we can go do this. Um, and it it does it makes a huge impact on those kids when when other folks really take the time to, to commit to their lives like that. It's really special. Yeah. And I, I was going to, too, say that I personally and I think anybody listening will agree that there wasn't a thing you said that was wrong, that you're you're absolutely on the money, that uh, that the everybody deserves those resources, regardless of if they're Dallas County or uh, Waxahachie. I, I'm, I can't remember which county Waxahachie's in, but I know it's a little smaller. It's Ellis County. You'll get that. Ellis. You'll figure that out. Yeah. No, you know, we used to joke around about that because folks in these larger counties would debate which of the treatment centers had beds in their county. And I would remind them, you know, most of the state, there's not any treatment centers for juveniles in their county. And you're trying to figure out which treatment center in your county has a bed. So kids in all these other counties that get placed there, their families have to find transportation or find a way to go see their family member, their child when they get placed into treatment. And so it's just a completely different mechanism for working with kids in counties that don't have those resources locally. That's really interesting. Um, Judge, I remember in class you talking about how maybe the juvenile system has a bit more focus on rehabilitation in some ways, whereas the adult system doesn't necessarily always have that focus. Um, Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, obviously we want... We want our kids to be productive adults in Texas. I mean, we want to put systems in place and programs in place that that can help them. And the system really is designed to try to identify those kids that need additional help. Now, that the problem then becomes if, if you identify a juvenile that has, we'll say, a substance abuse problem, and you can identify a placement where they can go, when's that bed going to be available and how willing are they going to be to go to that placement? And the intersection of of identifying that need and then being able to meet that need isn't always something you can get to. And that's frustrating. And and that can occur for a lot of reasons. I mean, we had a case just in the last week or two with a young man that uh, probation really wanted them to get uh, some services. They went to a treatment center and just refused to do anything. I started some fights while they were there and just refused to take that help. And I, I, I remind those kids and the families that any of the adults in the room that had this type of criminal conduct, the only treatment we would be getting is likely to be in prison. And so even if you're not excited about going to treatment, even if you're afraid to leave your family, uh, even if your family is afraid for you to go, these aren't programs that exist for the adults to get in trouble like this. And you've got to, if possible, find a way to embrace the opportunity to get help. 
and not be so upset about being punished, which is how the kids perceive it. I mean, we can call out rehabilitation all day long, but going to a treatment center when you're 15, I mean, no one's, no 15 year old is excited about that, whether it's through the juvenile justice system or even if the family can privately afford that, they're not going to be excited about that. I mean, most kids <clears throat> that are looking at going into programs like that might not even be excited about spending the night away from home, especially post-COVID. We've got a lot of kids that weren't even going to school, might not have been spending the night at their friend's home. And then because of some sort of mental health or, or substance abuse need, that you've got these folks that are coming into their life and saying, hey, you know what's going to be great for you? You to go to this uh, 12 to 16 week program, you go to this six to nine month program. Well, that's not how they're going to perceive that. that that's purely going to be perceived as punishment. And it's hard to, it's hard to bridge that gap to get them to embrace making those things that can help them become productive adults. There's no magic wand for that. Do you end up seeing a lot of uh, repeat offenders in the juvenile justice system, or do you tend to see less in the juvenile justice system than you do in the adult? You know, I will tell you, I have not had a steady diet of criminal cases since I was in private practice. I mean, I've, I've had some jury calls and I've taken on parts of some other courts dockets and I do the veterans treatment court here, but I can't. And so I just, preface all that was saying I can't really speak to the repeat offenders in the adult criminal system in McLennan County, but you do see some regular repeat um, offenders in the juvenile system. And that, and that's not to say they continue to commit new offenses, but the way the juvenile system structured, you know, you, you've got other informers that would not be there in the adult criminal system. Uh, if, if I'm in trouble and I'm on probation as an adult and living at home alone, um, you're not going to have necessarily the school officials contacting the probation department saying that I'm not doing good at school. You're probably not having my mom and dad communicate. My mom and dad don't have to bring me to the adult probation department when I report. So you've got all these other individuals that are able to identify uh, non-compliance. And so you could have Instances where kids continue to come to court or be referred back for violation of probation um, because of the nature of their conduct that's not criminal, could be non-compliant. And so you do see a lot of those instances. You do. Which is good because it may end up uh, getting their heads on straight a little bit more and keep them keeping them on the uh, straight and narrow, I guess. Well, it is. And it's difficult. I, I, regularly tell kids you know <laughs> your mom and dad want nothing more than for you to get your act together so that they can go to bed at night knowing if they need something they can call you for help and not spend the rest of their lives worried that every time the phone rings it's you calling them for help and it's often you know, we've all been 15 you don't really see things from your parents perspective at that age but but I try to impress upon them that your parents really are trying to do this to put you in a position to be helpful for them, for you to be the adult that helps your parents, not the adult that your parents are always having to help because you just can't, 
you can't get it together. I mean, I know that's a global statement, but you're trying to encourage these kids to stay in school, to finish school, to consider their options uh, uh, post high school, whether it's getting a job, uh, whether it's going uh, to junior college, going to TSTC. One of the great benefits to being in McLennan County is if uh, you've grown up here, is you've got access to TSTC, MCC, Baylor. You've got all the programs through MCC to get college degrees to other places, have new employers coming to town that are looking for skilled labor. I mean, you've got a lot of opportunities in McLennan County um, to, to take advantage of a lot of different academic locations that you wouldn't have in other parts of the state. So I, I think the juvenile system tries to lean into that and really tries to impress upon the juveniles the opportunities they have just by virtue of being in McLennan County, if they'll stay on the right path. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, just a bunch of opportunities here for them, which is awesome, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you kind of touched on this for a quick second. Um, you talked about like a veterans court almost. Um, I've heard this pop up a few times since I've been in Texas, but haven't learned too much about it. Um, would you mind giving like a brief overview of uh, the veterans court sort of program? Sure. We, we got this started and uh, certainly have to give a shout out to the law school. Um, Josh Bordrood was really instrumental in helping us get this launched here in McLennan County. Um, but we started, I can't remember what month we started working on it, but we actually started accepting applicants into the program and started meeting over COVID. So we had to pivot in the spring of 20 and we started bringing folks in on Zoom and meeting in the summer of 2020. And you've got a, um, and the Veterans Treatment Court is designed for those veterans who have gotten arrested and been charged criminally and are able to articulate and identify the requirements to get into the Veterans Treatment Court. Uh, you have to have to have qualified for uh, benefits to the VA. So you have to have some sort of service connection that we can identify through your service records. And then you, if you've been charged, the application asks you to identify your service related events that are connected to the offense conduct. And so that's often a challenge for veterans to identify those things that they experienced um, in, in combat or in their service that have ultimately caused their need to be in a treatment court. And in the treatment court, we're looking to identify those instances. Typically, it's substance abuse that tie back then to their service. And, you know, the easiest examples are to have veterans come in that were in combat experienced things in combat, came back home, discharged, and they've continued to struggle with the things they saw or the things they did and just have not been able to get help in dealing with those things and have either engaged in conduct or had substance abuse issues that have continued to lead them down a path of criminal behavior or problematic behavior at home in addition to criminal behavior. And so that if they apply and they meet those needs, we screen them. And really, at the end of the day, what you've got to have is certain types of offenses 
that would qualify. You know, without again, we could spend twenty five minutes just talking about the application process and what it looks like. There's certain types of offenses that are excluded: sex cases, uh, significant violent crimes, uh, aggravated robberies, homicide, things like that. We're not talking about that. More often than not, you're seeing alcohol and drug-related offenses. Sometimes you'll see family violence situations, theft cases, um, criminal mischief, criminal trespass, things uh, along those lines. And then the veterans articulate what experience they had during the service and what their use has looked like since that time, why they're using, um, why they, why they need help. And then they will, you know, in writing submit that, Hey, this is why I need help. And if they are voted on by our team, which includes, uh, somebody from the district attorney's office, we've got a specialty court coordinator. I'm on the team. We have somebody from adult probation on the team. We have a defense lawyer, and the thing that really sets the treatment court program apart is we actually have somebody that is a VJO, a veterans justice officer, who's a social worker from the VA that specifically ties in and works with our participants and our applicants in working with the VA uh, to get help, uh, whether it's just with the counseling they're doing and to develop an individual treatment plan so that they have a specific plan for them to help them address their needs and ultimately, hopefully, uh, successfully graduate from the program, which typically takes a minimum of 12 months. I probably gave you not near enough of most of the things you wanted to know no, about that was, and hopped that around was a little awesome. bit too much. <laughs> that was awesome. So I think it's with it. uh, very cool how much uh, like treatment and care that we're that justice system is giving to veterans and juveniles and just everybody that's getting involved. It's good to see that the system is focusing a lot on rehabilitation and trying to make people uh, come back to society um, and do well. I'm really proud of McLennan County and the efforts they've put in. And I, uh, for obvious reasons, I, I'm really thankful and proud to have been able to work with the veterans treatment court. I think that's a uniquely, um, a, a uniquely committed program that has resources uh, to give back to those folks that have served our country. And I think it's pretty special. And, and to see, to, to see the way that group of individuals is able to talk about things and work together. It really is a, um, when, we, when we have staffings and we have the meetings, the, the shared experiences and the opportunity to bond based on the service to our country that those veterans have really does, I think, set that type of treatment court apart because those individuals come into the treatment court with a shared baseline of having served our country in a way that allows them to really talk about their experiences in a way that really most of them have not. I mean, and I, I didn't serve. And so I, I readily tell them, I, I don't expect you to um, view me in the way you would view any of your peers. Uh, but those individuals, when they share with each other, it's, it's a meaningful experience and it bonds them in a way that as they're going through the treatment court program, they really do hold each other accountable and are going back to pull one another up when somebody's falling down. They can tell they're not doing what they need to be doing to succeed. It's, it's, it's a neat program. I'm, I'm, I'm 
thankful to have an opportunity to work with those men. Yeah, that and is, I say uh, men because right now uh, we've only had one female that's applied over the course of the program. Most of our applicants have been male. Yeah, that's a very neat program. And um, I see we're starting to run a little low on time. So do you have any uh, last uh, things you want to get out or uh, any nuggets of wisdom as Mr. Chris Benlove likes to say? You know, I don't know that there's anything that I've um, come here looking to deliver. Was there anything you guys wanted me to comment on or anything else I can throw out there? No, I think this has been great. I think we've covered a lot of the juvenile system and covered a lot of topics. It's been a very good episode. <laughs> I know we've I know we've hopped around a lot. It's quite the uh, the menagerie of things we've tossed out there tonight. I think. Yeah, we did. <laughs> well, um, with that, I guess we will go ahead and wrap it up. Um, this has been another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. Thank you all for joining us tonight and uh, we'll see you next time.